Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. So just to remind y'all, we haven't looked at Samuel in a couple of weeks. So uh, chapters 5 through 10 are a highlight reel for David. It's him as an ideal king, what it looks like for Israel to be living under this king who is keeping in step with the Lord. Uh, chapter 10 sets the backdrop for chapter 11. There's a battle. Uh, David sends a delegation of men to a town called Rabbah. It's over there in red. He's in Jerusalem over there in yellow. It's about 40 miles away. Uh, he sends a delegation of men over there to express sympathy to a new king named Hanun. Over the death of his father, Hanun treats David's men horribly. It's a declaration of war, so David sends his army uh, up to Rabbah to fight. Uh, when Joab, who's the commander of the army, gets there, they have a, kind of an initial of this nation. They all run back into Rabbah, their city. It's a walled city, so they run into that city and close the gates. So there's nobody for Joab to fight, and so he just goes back to Jerusalem. And chapter 11 picks up the next year. So that's, you know, we'll say that's 2017, and chapter 11 picks up uh, in 2018. In the spring... At the, times when king, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. We'll pause here. So spring, no rain, so it's easier to get around. There's wheat and barley growing, so your troops actually have something to eat. That's, when, that's why kings go to war in the spring. So this is a continuation of the war from chapter 10. And again, you've got the Ammonites. There's a fight there. Joab wins. And then they retreat into their city again. And uh, Israel sets up a siege, which is just a waiting game. It takes months and maybe even years. And the whole idea is people either surrender or they starve to death. Because you're not letting anyone out of the city and you're not letting any supplies into the city. And the key idea for us is it's months and maybe years. It's a long period of time. Should David have been there? Um, I would say yes. The, the king's, one of his primary responsibilities was to lead the army in battle. Uh, one of the initial reasons, major reasons Israel wanted a king was they said, we want someone who can lead us in battle. And that was common for all of the nations. That the king was at the front, not like what we have now. The king was at the front of, of the army. And the narrator seems to want to make sure that we have the city, the whole earth of Jerusalem, all of the men, the whole army of Israel is 40 miles away in Rabbah. And they're there for months. And David is back in Jerusalem by himself. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So, background... Uh, houses had flat roofs, very normal to walk around, no air conditioning, so walking around the roof would be the coolest spot that you could be in. You could catch the breeze. There's no indication that David was prowling or peeping or anything. He was just taking a walk on the roof. Bathsheba, there's a, in, I think it's in Leviticus, there's a, 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 a bath, a ritual bath is required after a woman's period, and we're not going to talk about that 
But after that, so all that means is she wasn't pregnant. That's the whole deal, and that's why she was taking a bath. There's no indoor plumbing, so you take a bath outside. And there's no indication that she was baiting him. So she wasn't doing anything wrong. She was actually following the law, taking this bath um, um, after her period, and David wasn't doing anything wrong. He was walking around because it was cool outside. And then he happens to see her, and he notices that she's beautiful. And now at, at a minimum, the next step is gray, uh, you, may, you may consider it a sin. At a minimum, it's gray when David sends someone to find out about her. So culturally, it seems like this is an area where Israel has not caught up to God's standards. God's standards for marriage are laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, one man, one woman, forever. And the standards for sex are the same within the context of that one, one, one man, one woman marriage. It, Polygamy was practiced. I don't know how common it was in Israel. There are several instances of it in the Old Testament. It's never explicitly condemned, except we know it doesn't live up to the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 standard. David not, didn't, David not only had multiple wives, David also had multiple concubines. And a concubine is basically a sex slave. Not in the way you're thinking of slavery. They were well taken care of and well protected, but their job was to have sex with David when he wanted and so he had wives and he had concubines. And so you could say, well, Bathsheba, if she was single, was eligible to be a wife or be a concubine. This is an area where Israel has not caught up to God's standards, not explicitly condemned in the Old Testament. Again, at a minimum, it's gray that he sees her and she's beautiful and he's thinking she's going to be part of his harem. I think he desire for any relationship with her at all other than in this Moment. So I think he's already crossed the line. But at a minimum, again, it's a gray area. So he sends a messenger to find out about Bathsheba, and, she come, and this messenger comes back, and he says, well, here's who she is. David easily could not know her. Men and women didn't mix socially. But David knew her father, Eliam. He was, David has these men. They're, they're called the 30. We'll see them at the end of Second Samuel. There's actually more than 30 of them. But they were his best of the best Fighters. They were his elite warriors, and it was, a, it was a small group. It was a small group of guys, and Eliam, Bathsheba's dad, was one of those guys. And Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was also one of those guys. David easily could not have known Bathsheba, but he knew her husband, and he knew her dad, and her granddad was a guy named Ahithophel, who was one of David's closest advisors. So he knew husband, he knew dad, and he knew granddad. It's wretched no matter what, but he knew the family. And those three men, particularly the father and the husband, they gave, they, I mean, they gave their life in support of what David was doing. Again, they, we'll, we'll get to them later on in 2 Samuel. And the risks that they take on behalf of David are enormous. These are guys who are fiercely loyal to him with their lives. And yet he says... To his messenger, will go get her, knowing she's married, and bring her back. They sleep together, and he thinks everything's okay. I guess it's maybe a month, five, six weeks, whatever that is, later. She sends word to him that she's pregnant, and we know David's the father. She had just come off her period when they slept together, and her husband is 40-something miles away, besieging Rabbah. And at that point, David's wheels start turning, and he's got to figure out, what do I do about this? At least theoretically, adultery is a capital offense. Don't know that anybody would have actually stoned the king, 
But theoretically, according to the law of Moses, both David and Bathsheba should have been stoned to death for committing adultery. So now David's got to figure out how he gets out of trouble. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. He did not care. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David's plan is, I need to get Uriah back, have him spend the night at home, and then everybody will think the baby is his and not mine. So that's his goal. So he sends for Joab, again, this 40 miles away where Uriah is. Uriah comes back to make small talk that David does not care about. David sends him home with the gift, most likely food and wine. And the implications are clear. I want you to go home. I want you to wash your feet. I want you to, I want you to be with your wife. But Uriah sleeps at the gate to the palace. He doesn't go home. The next day, David's, why didn't you go home? And he said, I, I can't. You see the stark contrast between Uriah's sense of loyalty and David's at this point. Uriah said, it's not right. My brothers, the art, which is the tangible symbol of the presence of God, my commander, they're all in war mode. I'm not going to take advantage of the fact that you called me home. I'm, I'm aligned and I'm, connect, I'm aligned with them and what they're doing. So then David tries to either. Clock is ticking. At some point, people are going to know it's not Uriah's baby. So if David can't get Uriah to go home so he can pass the baby off as Uriah's, then he's got to get Uriah out of the picture so he can marry Bathsheba and legitimate the child. Those are his only options. So what he, he writes a letter. The letter would have been sealed with wax, so there's no way Uriah could read it. That was normal with David's signet ring. That's how uh, a recipient would know that the letter was um, not tampered with and who it came from. So David has Uriah carry his death warrant back to Joab and says, I want you to set it up where Uriah is killed by the Ammonites. And Joab does. And Uriah and a couple of other guys, at least a handful of other guys, are killed. Now here's the fallout. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jared Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? 
If anyone asks you this, excuse me, if he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us. They came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Then Uriah's wife, excuse me, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for Austin. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So Joab, David remembers a brilliant military commander, never lost, never lost a battle. And so Joab seems to ad-lib, maybe because the circumstances dictated it, I don't know. But he doesn't do exactly what David said. What David said is put Uriah in a place where the fighting is fiercest, have some guys drop back so he's killed by the Ammonites. That's not what Joab does. There's a, a little group that comes out from the city and attacks where Uriah is, and they press up really close to the city, which is stupid. When, you're, when you've got a siege set up, there's no reason to get close enough to the wall that you can get hurt. The whole point is this is a long-range game where you can't get out and we're not letting anything in. There's no reason to get close. There's a story in Israel's history where somebody got too close to the wall and a woman dropped a rock on her head and killed him. Like that's part of their history. They, They know that. And Joab puts Uriah in a place where they press up near the wall and not just Uriah dies, but several other men die as well. And so Joab says to this messenger, if David gets upset because what I did was stupid, you just remind him that Uriah is dead. So the messenger gets to David, tells the story, and David's response is incredibly callous. He says, don't, tell Joab, don't let this upset you. Literally what he says, the Hebrew words there are, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Tell Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. War is terrible. People die. So you're, Bathsheba here, she mourns. There's a prescribed period of mourning. Maybe it's a week. And then David brings her into his house. How, eight months later, I guess at this point, seven months later at this point, she has a baby. David thinks he's dodged a bullet. And finally, the last sentence, the first time we see God mentioned in the whole chapter, we read that God was displeased. Literally, what David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that shows you this man after God's own heart, how hard his heart has become. That something he says, Joab, don't let this be considered evil in your eyes. When God judges it, it's considered evil in his eyes. That's how far David has moved away from the heart of God. That his judgment of a situation is diametrically opposed to God's judgment of the situation. So what do we do with this peach of a story? Happy Sunday after Easter. This is what we do. Some of you have been personally impacted by adultery. And I'm not going to necessarily speak to you this morning. That's, that's a one-on-one type conversation. But I will say this. If you are David this morning, then you need to know that forgiveness is available to you. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. That God offers you complete and full forgiveness and restoration. Confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You're not marked with the scarlet letter. When God forgives, he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He blots our transgressions out. He does not see the the outline of our sins any longer. 
And so you need to know that if you're David, that you can be completely restored in your relationship with God. You absolutely may still have to face consequences on this earth for those sins. Forgiveness from God does not necessarily mitigate earthly consequences. They're two separate things. There still may be consequences for you to face, but forgiveness from God is available to you, and it's complete, and it's full. Some of you are Uriah, and you've been burned by someone else. And for you, you need to know, and this may be a hard word, but that forgiveness is required of you. Jesus says that the measure that we use is the measure that's, me- that's used, uh, is measured back to us. And if what I'm going to say to someone is I'm going to expect and demand justice for you, then what I'm saying to the Lord is I want justice for myself. And so he, as deeply as that wound is and as devastating as that betrayal is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just asked or encouraged, you're required to forgive. That doesn't mean you have to stay in the marriage. That's between you and the Lord, and that's a, a bigger conversation as well. But in terms of holding, this, holding someone in judgment, we can't do that. As followers of Jesus, ones who have received mercy from him, then we extend mercy to others. Then what we say is, God, you deal with them. I'm not going to exact vengeance upon them. I'm going to release them to your judgment and your justice, whatever that happens to look like. That's what it means to forgive. It doesn't mean you're saying it's okay. It doesn't mean you're saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you're saying it doesn't hurt anymore. And it doesn't even mean you're saying I'm staying in this marriage. What it means is you're saying, God, I'm not holding them in judgment any longer. You don't hold me in judgment for the sins that I've committed. You've forgiven me. And so I'm going to extend that same mercy to someone else. There's no emotion necessarily attached to that. It's a decision that you make in your will. So if you've been personally touched... You just hold on to one of those two words. And again, that's probably a one-on-one conversation that needs to be had. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at James 1, where James develops kind of a pattern of sin or the maturation process of sin. I want to lay that on top of David's actions. And then I want you to think about your own heart. You may not struggle with sexual sin. It may be a different area where you struggle. But this pattern holds no matter what the behavior is. And I want you to begin to think about where, how do you address the sin issues in your own life. So in James 1, James says this. There's three stages of sin. You see that temptation, the sinful behavior itself, and then death. So James 1 says each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. So the idea there is being lured away. You can think of it like fishing. You, you, a hook has been baited. That's in it. In it There's something in our heart that that temptation is grabbing onto. So for David, we know from 2 Samuel 5.13, it's almost a throwaway line. David had multiple wives and he had multiple concubines. David had a lustful heart and that issue was not being addressed in him. He expressed that lust and at this point it was in a culturally acceptable way. Even if you want to say the wives were necessary for political purposes, the concubines were not. They had one job, and that was to satisfy his sexual desires. That was what they did. And so he, he has this lustful heart that he has acted on at least for years, maybe for decades. We don't know when this story happens chronologically in David's life, but at least for years he's been indulging this lustful heart in a way that's culturally acceptable through the acquisition of concubines. And then he sees a beautiful woman. He hasn't sinned yet. 
He just sees a beautiful woman. And the temptation then is there for him to take her. And that's what he's done in the past with all the other women who he's seen are beautiful. He's taken them and they become his concubines. And this, that, when he sees Bathsheba, that stirs this evil desire in him. The lustful heart in him is stirred by seeing her uh, naked. Stage two, sinful behavior. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So this is what evil desire produces. Evil desires produce sin. They never produce anything good. They only produce sin. And in David, it produces the sin of adultery. He sends someone to take Bathsheba. He says, get her. Literally, it's take her. Bring her back. And he sleeps with her. We don't have any indication if Bathsheba was thrilled that the king had taken notice of her or if she went reluctantly. Honestly, this sounds terrible, but she's just a prop in the story. She says two words, and I'm pregnant. That's it. Her posture is irrelevant. Second Samuel 11 is all about David's choices. So we don't know if Bathsheba was a willing participant or not. And for the purposes of 2 Samuel 11, it, it doesn't matter. The issue is David's own heart before the Lord. And so he brings Bathsheba to him, it seems willingly to me, and they sleep together and he's committed the sin of adultery. And then when sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, always, period, dot, the end. That's what sin does. Sometimes the death comes very quickly and sometimes it's prolonged and sometimes it's not until we stand before Jesus on judgment day, but sin produces death. Just like evil desires produce sin, sin produces death. And you can see that in David's case in some very literal ways. Uriah dies. You can read the paper. People's sin kills other people. That still happens. David's sin results in the physical death of Uriah and it results in a spiritual hardening of his own heart which, if not treated, can lead to spiritual death, where his judgment on the situation is diametrically opposed to God's judgment and God's perspective on the same situation. That shows the distance that's been created between David and between God. Next week, we'll see that David is restored, but for this week, leads to death. It can lead to death in your own life. It can lead to death in the life of people that you're connected to, and then spiritually, it always produces death in us. So if this is true, and if you want to become, if you want to be conformed in the image of Jesus, if, if you're looking to sin less, if you're looking to uh, be more righteous in your actions, however you want to say that, at what point do you deal with sin? It's in stage one. You need to deal with it at the temptation stage, which has to do with your heart. One of the places the church and some of us miss the mark is when it comes to trying to deal with sin, we start in stage two and we're trying to modify our sinful behavior and it never works for long. We live out of our hearts and if you want to address the sinful issues in your own life, then you have to begin with the evil desires in your own heart. It does no good to start with behavior. So two pictures as we close for you to think about. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's a wellspring of life. So you can think of your heart as a rock climbing wall. And the evil desires are the handholds. And those guys climbing are temptations. So they're temptations and they're external to us. Some people feel guilty when they're tempted. There's nothing to feel guilty about. You don't generate temptation. David's just walking on the roof and he sees a beautiful woman. All of that is innocent. 
Nobody did anything wrong. There's no sin involved in him seeing Bathsheba taking a bath. But temptation takes the, takes the opportunity. There's evil desires, lustful desires in David's heart. And the temptation to take Bathsheba grabs onto that lustful desire. He has those handholds in his heart that temptation grabs onto. Does that make sense? So what you want to do and what I want to do is we want to deal with the handholds. The fewer handholds we have, the less vulnerable to temptation we are. We don't get rid of all of them this side of heaven. But we can certainly deal with some of the issues in our own heart. That's work that we open our hearts to the Lord and we say, God, this is, I, I've got this thing. I find myself giving in to this temptation on a regular basis. If that's you, the question you need to ask is why? Why that temptation? What is the desire in your heart that that temptation is grabbing onto? Since we've already kind of opened the door, if we continue along the line of sexual sin, pornography, that's a temptation and it's ubiquitous. TV, billboards, movies, music, internet, it's everywhere. Temptation to look at pornography. And it's looking for handholds in hearts, men and women. It's looking for handholds to grab onto. Sometimes, but it's rare, that the handhold pornography grabs onto is lust. That's usually not the trigger for most people. It's usually not an issue of lust. People are, disip- are, are, are devastated, actually. They get married and think, I'm not going to struggle with pornography anymore. It's, that's not true. That's not true at all. As rarely is it a sex issue. Oftentimes, it's an issue of control or comfort. There's something in my heart, either a, a wound or this, and I desire to control. And pornography allows me to have that control. It's David, in a sense. I get what I want. I don't have to relate to anybody. I don't have to give anything. All I get to do, I just take I don't have to interact with anybody. I don't have to consider anybody else. I just get what I want. I've got to address that evil desire or I'm going to engage in pornography. It's just a matter of time. Comfort. For some people, that's what pornography is. If you don't struggle with that, you can't imagine how that's comforting. It actually there's some psychology to it and some brain science to it. And when you look at pornography, it releases dopamine in your brain. And that's one of the reasons it becomes such an addictive behavior for people because we get hooked on that dopamine kick that we get when you look at it. It's a comfort mechanism. I've had a tough day at work, and so this makes me feel better. I've had an argument with my spouse, and this makes me feel better. I got rejected, and this makes me feel better. If you don't deal with that desire in your own heart, you can't put enough filters on the Internet to keep you from engaging in pornography. You've got to deal with your heart. And you can play that out for any habitual sinful pattern. Why are you giving in to that temptation? You need to stop and ask the question. Why am I losing my temper? What is it that's causing me to blow up in anger at my children or at my coworkers or at my employees? What is it There's, that I'm tempted to anger and I give in and I explode? What is that in me? Or fear? Or despair. Whatever those sinful patterns are. Alcohol abuse. you got to address the issues in your own heart. And so do I. And then we also realize. That second picture. We're not going to be perfect until we die. We're not going to be fully conformed to the image of Jesus. Until we're born anew in the kingdom of God. In that sense. 
And so we're always going to struggle. We can move towards, we can be sanctified, we can move forward in sanctification, becoming more holy, but we're not going to be perfected this side of heaven. And so even as we deal with the issues in our own heart, we also, wisdom says, why don't you make it a little more difficult to sin? Don't make it easy. That's a Genesis 4. It's God talking to Cain, the first murderer in history. Cain is kicked at his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God and Cain's sacrifice is not accepted by God. And this is God's strong word to Cain. He says, listen, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. God can see Cain's heart. He can see how angry he's getting. He can see how this thing plays out. And he says, Cain, time out. Sin is crouching at your door and it wants to have you. You need to be master over it. And sin is the same. We need to recognize that. Even as we're dealing with our own heart issues, the evil desires in us, the woundedness in us that temptation grabs onto, we want to recognize, you know what? We're not going to be perfected. We're going to be weak. We're going to have vulnerabilities. We're going to have bad days. So are there some things that wisdom would say we can do to make it harder to sin? Are there some things that we can do? There's a, you know, the, on kind of a, a corporate level, people are talking about gun control and what we need to do. And guys on one side say you can't legislate morality and you can't. And people, bad people are going to shoot people and they are. And those things are 100% true. And at the same time, we would say, well, do we want to make it any easier for them? I don't think so. So while they're, they're both true. We need to address people's hearts, and while we're addressing people's hearts, let's make it a little, little more difficult to sin. And you can do the same thing in your own life. Think if David had some boundaries. Like, what if David had said, I'm not going to be alone in this palace without my... Now, he had a lot of wives to choose from. It would have been an easy boundary for him. I'm not going to be alone in the palace without one of these wives. But he didn't have the boundary. What if he did? He still may have committed adultery with Bathsheba in his own heart. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Anyone who looks lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. He may have done that. And that is a significant sin, but Uriah would still be alive if he had the boundary. He still may have sinned in his own heart. Bathsheba never would even have to know about it. He could have dealt with with his accountability partner. He could have. And Uriah is still alive. He had no boundaries. He saw something... It stirred a desire in his heart, and he went out and took it. And he was the king, and he could. We're not the king. Oftentimes, we put ourselves in positions of vulnerability. You can just, what, what would wisdom say to you if you know there's an area where you struggle? Even as you're bringing your heart before the Lord and saying, God, I need healing in this area. I need deliverance in this area. Normally, those types of deep desires where, you have, where you're habitually sinning, it's because of some, something from, it's, it's deep and it's old. And you have to kind of do some archaeology to get at, why is this thing so deep in me, this desire? And God, can you, and, and that can take time. It can take time with the Lord. It can take time with the counselor to work through those things. And even as you're doing that, so what are some boundaries that you can put up? What are some fences? If all you have are fences, you're going to sin. You're going to run through the fence. But as you're dealing with your heart, Wisdom says, why don't you put up a couple of boundaries, like the Billy Graham rule. Never be alone in an elevator with a woman. Well, you're probably not going to have an affair if you're never even alone with a woman. So that's, that's, just, that's, that's just a boundary for him. 
And maybe in your own life, you need to think about the areas where you struggle and what are some wise boundaries. You can't stop with boundaries. You've got to deal with your heart or you're going to blow through the boundaries. But as you're dealing with your heart, recognizing it's a process, recognizing in some ways we're always fallen, we're weak in some areas. So what does it look like to be wise in those areas? So if we happen to see the beautiful woman and it stirs something in us, we at least have some safeguards in place that keep her us from bringing her into our house, whatever that happens to look like for you. I want us to take a few minutes and pray. It's a tough, tough thing to talk about. For some of you, you, I lost you at verse 5 because it stirred personal memories of betrayal in your own life. And what you may want to do as we close with worship and prayer, put yourself in a position just to receive the love of God in that area where you've been wounded and hurt and betrayed. You may feel like that's in the past and you've dealt with it, but maybe if you're, if you're feeling strongly right now, that may be an indication that there's something, another level of healing the Lord wants to bring to you. There may be another step of forgiveness he would ask of you. I don't know that. But if you're, if, you're, if you're stirred up internally, I would pay attention to that. For some of you, I lost you at verse 5 because you're David. And so you've just sunk lower and lower in your seat. And you can't get out of here fast enough. And I would encourage you to recognize the gracious offer of forgiveness that's on the table for you. We don't do penance. That's not what we do. We receive forgiveness. You confess your sin. And he'll be faithful and he'll be just and he'll forgive you of that sin. And he'll cleanse you of all of that unrighteousness. And when he looks at you, he'll look at you through the lens of the righteousness of his son. Not through the lens of your guilt or your sinful behavior. More broadly, all of us struggle. It may not be sexual sin for you, although I would say that is uh, an area where, according, you know, for whatever statistics are worth, the church is not very much better than the world at large when it comes to righteous attitudes and behaviors around sex. If that's an area where you struggle, I would encourage you, take some time this morning and give the Lord access to that desire in your heart where that temptation is grabbing on. If you are flirting, and I use that word intentionally, if you are flirting with immorality, you need to hear this as a warning from God to stop. You need to pull up before you invite that woman to your house. Your sin always finds you out. That's not a threat. It's reality. Either God exposes because he wants to heal you, or the devil exposes because he wants to hurt you. If you're flirting with sexual immorality at all, 
please hear this as a warning and an opportunity. It may hurt. There may be earthly consequences now, but they're not going to get any better if you bury or if you continue in the behavior. More broadly for all of us, there are areas where we struggle. And I'd encourage you to take some time this morning. Bo's going to sing a song and and we're just going to sit in the presence of the Lord. And I would encourage you in your own heart, a lot of this is very personal. You may want to ask God, God, why am I tempted in this way? Why this? And give him freedom to connect some dots for you. And they may not be dots that are immediately obvious. Give him some space from Jeremy open today saying we want to hear from the Lord. This is an area we want to hear from God. God, help us discern our own hearts. And there may be, you would also want to say, God, are there, are there any areas where I'm just being a fool? Where I'm being foolish with my behavior? Where I'm playing with fire? in this area of my life. And we're going to close after this first song with worship. We'll have an opportunity for you to come forward for ministry. And if you come forward, everybody's not going to assume that you are an adulterer. You don't need to worry about that. You come forward as you feel led by the Lord. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. The expression of humility and faith that it takes to walk forward sometimes breaks the power um, that sin may have in our life. And so, I want to encourage you to do that. Anything you share with our ministry teams is confidential. And they're just going to pray. They're not going to pry. And we'll close with a song of worship. So I'm going to say a prayer. Bo's going to sing. You sit in the presence of the Lord. And then after the first song, Bo will have a stand. Ministry teams will come forward. And you can either come forward in response or you can uh, stay in your seat and worship. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would search us and that you would know us. That can be scary at times, but ultimately, Father, that your desire is to conform us into the image of Jesus, who is a man just like us, yet without sin. And so, whatever it looks like for us to grow in holiness of heart, God, we want to do that this morning. So, God, would you move in our hearts? I pray that there be a sense this morning, not of guilt for sure and absolutely not condemnation that doesn't come from you. There be conviction where it's appropriate and that we would respond appropriately. God, I pray places where we're vulnerable, where we are open to attack from the enemy, where temptation uh, has a field day with us. God, would you address those issues in our hearts now? Would you begin to bring healing to our hearts? Would you purify our hearts? There are fewer handholds for temptation to grab onto. God, we want to live lives that honor you. We want to hallow your name by the way that we live. So, God, would you come now and just strengthen us by your spirit. I thank you that you don't leave it up to us. You don't say to us, try harder, do better. God, I thank you that your word to us is yield to me. Just yield. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to yield to the purifying work of your spirit. And we want to yield to the empowering work of your spirit. God, I pray for any who are struggling with condemnation now that you would Remind them of their identity as a son and as a daughter. That you would encourage them with your invitation to relationship and restoration. In Jesus' name.